Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. All right. Isn't it fun to hear the scripture read in another language? I mean, it just reminds us that the church is so much bigger than this church or the English-speaking church. It is all around the world. It's doing things all over the place. The gospel has gone forth into all the world. And uh, so just a little taste of what it's like to go to church in, in Costa Rica. Thank you, Carlos and Rosario. It's a blessing to have you here. Uh, so let's begin. Our passage today is Romans chapter 6. Uh, Aaron was originally slated to preach this passage, and then he had to get his arm operated on. And we're so glad that he's back with us, so you'll see him around there with his sling. So uh, he's been recovering and enjoying his meds, and uh, now, now he's back with us, and we appreciate that. So it's good to have Aaron back, and we thank the Lord for successful surgery, but I get the opportunity to share with you over this passage. And it's a great passage in the, God, in the book of uh, Romans. And so um, as I was uh, thinking about it, I just have a few things that I want to say um, in, as, we, as we get into our passage today. Last year, I read a biography about George Washington. And, uh, you know, George Washington had to think a lot about this issue of freedom and slavery. What does freedom mean to him? What does slavery mean? As he thought about uh, a nation that was struggling to be free from a colonial power that was uh, dominating it and oppressing it. He also then had to think about this issue of slavery and freedom as he thought about his own plantation and what it meant for the United States to be a free nation, but to have a, a whole class of people that were slaves in that nation. And it was difficult for him. I think about what's going on in Ukraine today. And we think about what it means to be a people that is fighting, literally fighting for their freedom today in our modern world as another nation wants to oppress them and control them. As Christians, what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be a slave? How does all of this fit together with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Today, we're going to grapple with these questions as we talk about Romans 6. So let's begin by talking a little bit about slavery. The Apostle Paul begins with uh, this passage. We stuck again? Get her running. I got my Bible right here. It's not a problem. So the Apostle Paul uh, begins by saying, don't you know, verse 16, when, that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You see, there are greater powers at work in this world than just our will. I think sometimes we tend to overestimate just how in control we are in our lives today. 
But Paul basically is saying in this passage, you got to serve somebody. You can either serve sin and be a slave to sin and the products that it will create in your life, or you can be a slave to righteousness, to obedience, and you can become uh, a, a part of what God is producing there. But you've got to serve somebody. This is all based on the idea that Jesus shared in the Sermon on the Mount. And he basically said that there are two roads. There is the broad and wide road that leads to destruction. And there is the narrow road that leads to life. You've got to choose one of these two roads. And you know, the truth of it is that once you make that choice and you commit to a particular road, then that road governs where you go. In some ways, we set aside our decision-making ability once we have chosen a road. For example, I end up going a lot of times to uh, Kansas City. And if you want to take a highway to Kansas City, you got to drive to Joplin. You may say, well, I don't want to drive to Joplin. I want to go to Kansas City. Well, if you're going to take the highway, you got to go to Joplin. It's just the way the road's going to take you. You don't have a choice. And so that road determines the direction that we go. Now, you can take the narrow road to Kansas City, Highway 169, right? And if you do, you're going to drive through Nowata, whether you like it or not. You're going to drive through Coffeyville, Kansas. You're going to drive through Iola, Kansas. You're going to drive through Paola, Kansas. And eventually, you'll make it to Kansas City. And you may say, I don't want to stop at every little podunk town in Oklahoma and Kansas. Too bad you chose 169. You're going to go that way. Because the road has already determined where you're going to go. You see, that's what it means to be either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. That determination has been made for us. Verse 19 says this. You used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to an ever-increasing wickedness. The road to sin becomes a bondage for us, doesn't it? The road to sin becomes a bondage for us. We may think that we are in control, but there's no way off the road. You ever, you ever, were you ever riding on a highway and you missed the exit that you needed to turn? And it's a, it's a highway that you're unfamiliar with and it seems like it's like 20 miles before you get to the next exit and you are in essence a slave to the road. You can't get off. You can't turn around. You can't stop. You just have to go where the road's going to take you until you get to the next point. Well, this is what happens with sin. Once we have started down the pathway of sin, that pathway of impurity, then we are on a process of ever-increasing wickedness. Ever-increasing wickedness. We are started along a pathway that we can't stop. If the sin is lust, it begins innocent enough 
but it begins to develop inside of us and it will leave us to unfaithfulness. It will leave us, lead us to impurity and all kinds of, all kinds of perversion before it finally destroys us. If we're talking about the sin of greed, it never gets enough. We want more and we want more and more possessions and more pressure on our life until that materialism snuffs out our very existence. If it's addiction, whether it be to alcohol or to some pill that we take, there's never enough. You always just need one more and one more and one more. Sin is never enough. It's an ever-increasing process of wickedness. Verse 21 says this, What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? What benefit did you reap from sin? What good did it do for you? I love what Aaron said last week when he talked about sin being like kind of like our buddy, like our friend. Hey, you know, sin, I can't let you in today. I'm kind of busy doing the church thing, but you know, I'm really going to miss you. That's not sin. Sin is the intruder in your house. Sin is there to destroy you. Sin will never bring anything good into your life. Amen? Sin will destroy you. It will lead to your destruction and eventually your death. That's what the Bible promises us. Sin will never be for our benefit. So that's what it means to be a slave to sin. Now, the other side of this is being a slave to to God, a slave to obedience. And sometimes I think we feel uncomfortable with this terminology of being a slave to God. It's used in the Bible. It certainly has something to teach us. Uh, But it's such, slavery is such a negative term that it's hard for us to think about our relationship with God in, in terms of slavery. And so I'd like to present to you this idea of allegiance. Look at this verse of verse 17. It says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. I like this word allegiance. Think about it for a minute. You have allegiance. What do we, when, when do we use this word? We use, it, we use it a lot of times in relation to the flag, right? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the republic for which it stands, right? One nation under God, amen? That's what we say. We think about allegiance in terms of our civic duty, our connection with our country. I think about it in terms of soldiers, The word here actually means to hand over. And I think it's talking about handing over our decision-making ability. And isn't that what soldiers have to do with their commanding officer? They hand over their decision-making ability to that leader. And they say, I'm going to be, I'm going to pledge my allegiance to you. I'm going to follow your command. And I'm not going to question what you tell me to do. Now, why would you ever do that? Well, in the case of a soldier and his commanding officer, he knows that that's, that commander, he's got access to more information than the rank-and-file soldier has. He knows more. He's got the intel, right? Not only that, but he's got a better perspective of the, of the battlefield, of the plan, of what's going on, what needs to be done. He has a broader perspective. 
Also, that person has more training, doesn't he? That person, maybe that person went to West Point. That person has experience, much broader experience than the normal soldier. And so it comes to the point where that soldier very wisely says, I'm going to trust you to make those decisions and I'm going to submit and I'm going to be obedient to what you have to say. Because if I obey you, then I know I have a better chance at life. I have a better chance at victory. Right? And so isn't that the way we live our Christian life with Jesus Christ? We pledge our allegiance to Jesus. Why? Because he's got more information than we do. He's got a better perspective on this world than we could ever have. He's a lot smarter than I am. And he can make those decisions for me. And so I'm going to obey you, Jesus, and I'm going to follow you because I know that's the best chance I have for life and for victory. And so this, I think, is what Paul is telling us, that we are to have an allegiance to God. Verse 19 says, So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. How many of you in here are holy? I don't see hands jumping up real fast. Holiness is one of those intimidating words. It's a daunting word as we think about it. What does it mean to be holy? Am I really holy? When will I be holy? I don't know. I know my own sin so deeply, right? That it's difficult for me to think in terms of holiness. But he says, now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is doing what's right. It's very simple. Doing what's right. We do what's right. One obedience at a time. One situation at a time. One decision at a time. Amen? So as we make those decisions, one circumstance at a time, and we do the right thing today. Right now, we do the right thing. And then tomorrow, we try to do the right thing right now, today, in this situation. And as we go from good decision to good decision, obedience to obedience, what happens? We're living a holy life. All of a sudden, it leads us into holiness. Amen? And that's what God desires for us. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about transforming us from being people that are dominated by sin to being dominated by holiness. And that comes from this obedience to Jesus Christ and this allegiance of following him. This is where we want to go. We've been talking a lot about the gospel here in Romans. It's all about the gospel. It's laying out for us the gospel And as we come to verse 23, verse 23, I tell you what, verse 23 is one of my favorite verses, one of the most important verses, I think, in the Bible, because it summarizes for us the gospel. And as we've been working our way through all of Romans, you know, Paul begins this argument of his in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Are you ashamed of the gospel? No, we're not ashamed of the gospel. As a matter of fact, we have decided as a church to be gospel-driven. What does that mean? Let me tell you what it means. Gospel-driven. 
demonstrated by a driven passion to have gospel conversations with people who are disconnected from God and the church. Are you passionate about having gospel conversations with people who are disconnected from God and the church? The measure for this that's associated with this value is with whom did you have a recent gospel conversation? This is all great. This is all well and good. But do you know how to share the gospel? It's so difficult sometimes. We've been in church, many of us, our whole life. That means you have 1,600,000 scriptures packed in your head, right? It means you've heard 21,000 sermons in your life. But do we know the gospel? Can we explain the gospel clearly and simply to someone that we meet on the street who's interested in knowing Jesus? Can we do it? Well, I think when we get to this point in Paul's argument, he gives us verse 23, which is a summary of the gospel itself. So we're going to take some time. We're going to walk through this verse word by word, and we're going to talk about what is the gospel. What are the essential elements of the gospel? Okay? Now, you can take notes. We also have these notes available for you, and I'll talk more about that later. But here we go. Strap in. Let's begin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's say the verse together, okay, out loud. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, now let's talk about it in terms of these words. Start with the first word, wages. What are wages? Wages are something that you earn, something that you work for, something that you deserve, right? Let's say, for example, that I were to say to Ryan Fleming, Ryan Fleming is the owner of, you know, Fleming's Comfort Footwear. And I would say, Ryan, Ryan, I'm going to come over to your place. I'm going to bring my whole family over. And we're going to try on shoes, man. We're going to buy some shoes. And everybody tries on shoes. We buy 10 pairs of shoes from Ryan's shop. He's there. He sizes everybody up. He gives them the whole, he brings out 12 pairs of shoes for each person to try on, different styles, different colors. He spends hours with us. We get them all outfitted with the best shoes. We talk about, he gives me, tells me how much it's going to cost, gives me the invoice there. And I say, great. But then at the end, I say, you know, we're all really happy with the shoes. But I forgot, Ryan, I forgot that I had to pay my mortgage this month and so i can't afford to buy the shoes i hope that's okay but we're gonna everybody's happy and they really like their shoes right what is ryan gonna say to me oh no i worked for those for that money i earned it i deserve it you need to pay me my wages as a matter of fact I could take you to small claims court because the law says that you have to pay me for the goods that I have provided for you. It would not be a pretty sight. I mean, Ryan's a nice guy, but it would not be a pretty sight. That's a lot of shoes. Okay, let's talk about the next word, sin. What is sin? 
You know, remember, you're talking to a person who's never heard anything about the gospel. They've never read the scriptures. They're not going to give you some kind of a definition that comes right out of Erickson's theology or something like that. It's not going to happen. How would people define sin on the street? Well, I guess sin is doing what's wrong. When you know what's right and you do what's wrong. Well, that's a good enough definition for me. How many of you have ever done what's wrong when you knew what was right? Raise your hand. Come on, don't be shy. I know you. Okay, good. There's some honesty. I'm the same boat. I have known what is right and I've done what is wrong intentionally. All of us have sinned. The Bible says that all of us have sinned. Every single one of us has sinned in some way or another. Multiple times, multiple times daily we sin, right? Okay, let's go on and talk about the next word, which is death. Death is kind of a hard word to define. You ask people to define death and they go, eh, the absence of life, um, uh, um, pushing up daisies, kicking the bucket. I don't know. How do you define death? Well, the Bible defines death as separation. Physical death is separation from this world, from this physical world. It's separation from your loved ones. It's separation from your stuff. It's separation from your, your life, your experiences, your relationships. All of that is gone, and you are separated from them. That's what physical death is. But the Bible says that there's something called spiritual death, and spiritual death is separation from God. Spiritual death is separation from God. That means there's no way for us to be together with God. Why? Because we've all done something wrong, right? We've all unknowingly done the wrong when we knew what was right. Therefore, we've all sinned and we deserve, earned, and worked for the wages of that sin, which is death, which is separation from God. That's bad news, isn't it? Turn to your neighbor and say, that's bad news. That is bad news, okay? Not only is that bad, but it gets worse. Why? Because if you die physically while you're separated from God spiritually, then you're going to end up in a place called hell. And hell is not a pretty place. Jesus describes it as a place of suffering, a place of eternal regret. If God is everything good, if God is love, if God is justice and righteousness and hope and mercy and all of those things, then hell is a place without God. It's a place where you're distant from all of those things that belong to the nature and character of God. It's a terrible place, and it's for eternity. That is bad news. That's bad news, and that is where we are stuck as humanity. We are stuck in that place. That's you right there. We're stuck there in the midst of bad news. This is the bad news that we've been talking about in Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. This is the bad news. However, the next word is so important. It's a but. It's a big but. I mean, I'm talking the biggest but in the Bible. We're talking about grammar here, guys, okay? Clean up your minds a little bit. We're talking about coordinating conjunctions. It's a very important but. That but brings hope. Even though there's bad news, that but tells us that there is hope. And I tell you what, there is always hope in God. There is always hope in God. Even when life seems 
uncertain, even when life seems impossible, even when it looks like there is no way out, there is hope. And that's what that but tells us. That but tells us that following the bad news, there's some good news. Let's talk about the next word. The next word in this verse is gift. What is a gift? A gift is exactly the opposite of wages. It's something you didn't work for. It's something you never earned. It's something that you certainly don't deserve, right? A gift is something that's freely given to someone. You know, when does a gift become a gift? Victoria. Victoria. Where's Victoria? Victoria, right here. Come here. I'm going to give her five bucks. When does this gift become a gift? When does it become a gift? When she takes it. It's a gift. No, it's yours. It's a gift. Go ahead. It wouldn't be a gift if I took it back, right? It's a gift. A gift is a gift when we take it, when we receive it, when we make it our own. That's when a gift becomes a gift. You see, God has given this gift. What's the next word in our list? It's God, right? God has given us this gift. And, but if we don't take it, and it's never a gift for us. It never becomes a personal gift for you if you don't receive it. Am I right? Why do you give somebody a gift? Why do you give somebody a gift? Why did I give Victoria a gift? Because I've known her family for years. I love her family. I remember when she was a baby. We give a gift because of love. Ultimately, we give people gifts because we love them. So we've established that God has given us a gift, and it's a valuable gift. What gift is it? Well, the Bible tells us that it's eternal life. Eternal life. What is eternal life? Well, if sin, a death is separation from God, then eternal life is union with God. It's being together with God forever. And God is everything that is good. He is everything that is merciful and great and kind and lovely and loving. And the thought of being with God and having all of that forever is good news. This is the good news of the gospel, that we have been given the opportunity to have eternal life. It's a gift that we don't deserve, that God has decided to give to us because he loves us so deeply. That's the good news of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Okay, so the problem is, there's a problem, isn't there, when you look at this picture. God is caught in a dilemma. That dilemma is that he loves us intensely. He loves us so much, he wants to give us the gift of eternal life because he wants to be with us forever. However, just as much as God is loving, he is also just. And because God is just and bound by his law, he must give us what we earn, deserve, and work for, which is death, which is separation from him ultimately. So how does God work out this dilemma? Well, the Bible tells us God doesn't stay in a dilemma very long. It says from the beginning of creation, God had a plan to work this problem out. And we see that plan in the next two words that show up in our verse, and that's Jesus Christ. 
Christ Jesus is the answer to God's dilemma and to our problem of sin. God, in order to fix this problem, he came to earth. He sent his son himself. He came into his creation, born of the Virgin Mary, and he lived among us in a physical body as a human being. But he lived a perfect life. He never committed sin. He never once did what was wrong, knowing what was right. He always did what was right. Always. He never committed sin. And if he never committed sin, then he didn't deserve the wages for sin. He didn't earn them. He didn't deserve them. He didn't work for them. But yet, he still died a terrible death on the cross. And that's why we drew the cross up there. Because Jesus died on the cross even though he didn't deserve to die on a cross. But by dying, by paying the wages of sin, not his own sin, but your sin and my sin, he has freed us from the bad news. He has fulfilled the justice of God. The law of God is now satisfied because of Jesus' action on the cross, because of his death on the cross. So now we have a way to this side of the picture. We have a way to God. And now we can experience the gift that God desires to give us, which is eternal life. You know, there's another famous verse in the Bible that says, for God so loved the world, right? Loved the world that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him will not die, but they'll have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Well, you might say, well, first of all, as I told you, you know, you're represented by that little guy up there. That's where we all start. The question is, where are you right now? How do you make Jesus your own? How do you receive this gift that God has given you? Well, the last word in the verse tells us. And it's the word Lord. Lord is an old word. Remember the medieval times, the lords and ladies. Lord just simply means master. The master of the manor. The master of the castle. Jesus is the master. He is the Lord. Are you willing to allow him to be the Lord of your life? Are you willing to allow him to be your master, to be obedient to him, to listen to him, to fall in submission before him? If you do that and if you believe in him, then you can receive the gift that God wants to give you, which is eternal life through his love. That's the gospel. Again, think about where you are. There may be some people in this room that have never heard the gospel before. And you're seeing this for the first time and you're looking at this little chart up here and you're saying, you know, I know exactly where I am and it's not a good place. And I want to receive the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ. I want to experience his love. If that's you, then I want to pray for you. There are elders here in this church that want to pray for you. So after the service, we're going to ask you to come up and we want to pray for you. To accept it. Some of you have been Christians for a long time and you're saying, man, 
This makes sense to me. I could share this with somebody. Well, we've made it available to you. We've got hard copies on the information desk in the back. Word for word, how to go through this presentation of the gospel. It's also available on the website. First page, hit the button that says one verse Bible method and hit the button and you'll get that. You can download it and you can look at it and you can work through it and you can think about it. You can pray through it and you can share it with someone else. You see, because this is what God has called us to be, gospel people. This series is called Becoming Gospel People. Well, how do we become gospel people? We got to start by knowing the gospel, amen, so that we can share it with people that are dying in darkness, that are stuck on the bad side of the equation. They need the truth of the gospel, amen, amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have given it to us, Lord God, in the person of Jesus Christ, Heavenly Father, you love us so deeply that you want us to live with you forever, to experience life, experience eternal life because of your love. Father, help us. Help us to accept, to receive the gospel with joy so that we might share it with others so that others may know who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.